If you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis 1-1. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page one. And I would imagine that that's going to be true in most, most Bibles as well uh, this week. <clears throat> and so Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so as we open, we see that God creates everything, in the heavens and the earth. Uh, but we also see that there's some obstacles to the flourishing of life as we open this passage. And the first thing we'd see is that, that the earth is without form and void. And in the Hebrew, that's a fun little word play, tohu vabohu. Right? So wild or waste, form without void, and the two words, the first word has to do with things being unordered or, or kind of chaotic, and the second word with it being uninhabited or empty. And then the second obstacle is the darkness, right? And this is one of the most used images in Scripture, one for the obvious that when things are, are dark, they're dark, but it also has lots of kind of... Uh, symbolic meaning as well, the absence of light, and so it has broad figurative applications as well. And then the deep, right? Chaotic waters is a common image in the Bible and in the Near East uh, for chaos and forces that are destructive or oppose the flourishing of life. Um, connected to, Gary mentioned the serpent when we were in Exodus, right? That, that whole, the, the sea dragon and that whole thing, all these images are kind of tied together. And so these, these three images really are um, images for death or things that are anti-life, the darkness, the desert, the deep. And the rest of Genesis 1 really presents God overcoming these and preparing a world and a place where life can flourish. So I want to take a, just a brief overview of kind of the literary design of Genesis 1, uh, the six days of creation. And you see in, in days one through three, God forms, kind of dealing with that unordered chaos part of creation, the tohu, if you will, right? He's, so you'll see that he speaks, he separates, and he names. And so day one, he forms, uh, the, or he speaks, right? Let there be light, and he separates the light from the dark and names them day and night. And day two, he separates waters from waters, forms the expanse, calls them the skies or the heavens and the, the seas. In day three, right, he gathers all the waters in one place, dry land uh, appears. And that's kind of parallel by days four, five, and six, where those three spaces he creates, he now fills. So day four, he fills the day and the night with the host of heaven, the sun, moon, and stars. In day five, he fills the skies and the seas with birds and fish. And in day six, he fills the dry land with livestock, creeping things, and ultimately, the, I think the crown jewel of creation, humans, if you will. And so it's really driving uh, those six days all about God forming a space and then filling it, dealing with the tohu and the bohu, if you will, of, of creation. The darkness is uh, contained, the deep is contained, and now life can flourish on the earth. And that leads us to day seven uh, in, in chapter two, verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. 
And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so we see that God finished his work and that he rests from it. Um, now, I think our concept of rest is probably a little different than, than the ancient Near Eastern understanding of it. When I hear rest, right, I think of God on a beach with a mango smoothie with one of those little umbrellas in it, kind of kicking his feet up. That's what comes to mind when I think of rest. Uh, but I, I think they thought about it a little differently, and I think John Walton uh, summarizes it well. He says, the concept of divine rest is prominent in ancient Near Eastern literature. Deity's rest is achieved in a temple, generally as a result of order having been established. The rest, while it represents disengagement from any process of establishing order, is more importantly an expression of engagement, as the deity takes his place at the helm to maintain an ordered, secure, and stable cosmos. And so day seven, really what it depicts is as God has done all this ordering, all this filling, he now kind of moves in to his cosmic dwelling place, his cosmic temple. And knowing Eric, I would imagine there'll be some probably parallels between creation and the tabernacle and temple made next week. But suffice to say for now, that's the, the presentation of creation is that it's God's cosmic temple or dwelling place. And so now that God's kind of settled in with his creation, he's present within it, what I want to do is just go back through Genesis 1 and 2 and look at a few passages that highlight what is God's presence like? What, what does it mean to be with God uh, in a garden? And to start, I just want to go back to Genesis 1, verse 27, where it says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so here we see that God creates humans and they're made in God's image. Now that word image, as well as if you went back to verse 26, you'd see the word likeness. They're often used of idol statues in scripture, those terms. Um, and in the ancient world, they, they served as emblems of deity and or like a king's rule and reign. So here's a, an example from Assyria, the Lamassu statues. Uh, you can see these, if you, by the way, when you think of cherubim, this is probably what you should be thinking of. Um, and so the, these were statues, you see the king of Assyria's head on there, and what they did was any city where he didn't live, or, or he would put one of those to remind people, hey, this is still under my rule and reign and, and sovereignty, if you will. And so what Genesis 20, uh, 127 and 28 is making this profound statement that not one king was given this kind of authority, but that that was given to all humans to be an emblem of God's rule and reign over all of creation. And so he goes on um, to also use the phrase have dominion or let them rule, which connects to the image, obviously. God delegates, again, his authority over creation uh, to steward it, to rule over it to all humans and not one tyrant king. And what I find interesting is, is what he tells them on, on how to rule. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And so 
when we think of ruling or reigning, I think what Genesis 1 presents is you're supposed to make babies and farm. Welcome to what it means to be a king, right, in the biblical narrative. And so it, what's interesting is that in other Mesopotamian like creation accounts, you'll have uh, the gods create humans and give them kind of the menial tasks that the do gods don't want to do um, as, as a way of that's what work is. Right, as you guys were created just to do the, the hard labor that we, we don't want to. But bio, the Bible's presenting work and family in a very different light. It's presenting this as a portrait of partnership with God, like a divine human partnership. What does it mean to rule and reign with God? It means to raise kids and to, to work hard. And so, all that to say, God's presence is a place of partnership. God didn't just move in and do everything himself. He actually invited humans to participate in his stewarding of creation. And when we think about being with God, we should also think about partnering, partnering with him in the rule of creation. And the primary ways we do that is by working hard and growing a family. And I, I, I don't know about you, but the first thing, when I think about being in God's presence, like what doesn't pop to mind is like a 12-hour shift with a shovel or rearing my children. That's not the first thing that comes to mind when I think about being in God's presence. But that's why I love Genesis 1, because <laughs> maybe it should. One of the ways we experience God is through our relationships and through the work that he sets before us. And that's, that's become difficult. We'll look at uh, Genesis 3 here in a little bit. But I think as new creations, this is something that we should try to grab a hold of. God's original uh, vision for uh, us as humans was to really look and see our relationships as our, and our work as significant ways in which we partner with God and experience his presence. And so God's presence is a place of partnership. I want to jump over to uh, uh, verse 8 of chapter 2. And it says this, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put a man whom, uh, whom he had formed. And out of the ground, uh, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so you see God plants a garden in Eden. Um, and that garden uh, or Eden itself means delight. So imagine a garden in delight. Sounds like a pretty awesome place, right? And there's all kinds of trees. They're aesthetically pleasing. Their fruit is also nourishing. This garden is a, is a pretty sweet, sweet place. I think that's what the Bible's presenting. Uh, and as you keep going, there's a river that flows out of it. A river flowed out of Eden to the water of the garden, and there it divided and became four waters. And the name of the first is the Pishon, and the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Medellum and onyx stone are, are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So you see this river that's the source of all life, and it divides into four headwaters. Now, the number four, I think, is, is representative of the whole earth, right, is the idea. So you, in uh, the Bible, like the four winds or the four corners of the earth, 
I, th I think it's that same kind of idea. And what you notice is the rivers flow into regions that when you read the rest of the Bible, it's all the regions where like Israel's worst enemies are. So Havilah is the Sinai Peninsula where they'll encounter the Canaanites. Uh, Cush is northern Egypt where we've just been reading about the conflict they had with the Egyptians. Uh, Assyria, right, is, will be the area that the Assyrians come from. Go figure. And the Euphrates, right, that's the area of, of Babylon, um, who will eventually destroy the temple and cart Israel off to Babylon. And so in light of what's coming in the biblical storyline, this creation narrative, I think, is making the profound point that God is the source of life and abundance, even for those areas and regions and peoples that would become Israel's enemies. And I think that's a reminder to us that God's presence is a place of plenty. Right? We as humans, we fall prey to that zero-sum mindset. If my neighbor is winning, if my neighbor's succeeding, that must mean that I'm losing or failing. If you have something, it means I didn't get it, and I should be upset about that. Or we'll slip into the comparison game. Rather than be able to celebrate your gifts or your victories, uh, I see it as, well, I didn't live up to that, and I need to do better or be better. Um, and so, or when the Lord chooses to bless us. And another way this, we see this is when God does place blessing into our life or gives us victory, we tend to hoard it rather than share it freely and let that blessing overflow into the live, lives of others. And I think God's presence, is, it changes all of that, right? If we see God as the source of life and abundance for all things and all people, when he puts that into my life, what I realize is that that's often where, where blessing will flow into the lives of others. There's plenty for everyone. And his abundance and his presence allows our communities to become places of encouragement and support rather than that of competition. I want to look at one more aspect of God's presence, 2, uh, 18 and, and verse 25. 18, uh, verse 18 of chapter 2 says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a help, helper fit for him. And then there's the story of, of all the animals being created and paraded, and Adam names them, and there's not a suitable helper. And then finally, God says, You know what? Go to sleep. Takes his rib, fashions a woman, and it's, it's the, the right fit. And verse 25 then says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so they were there in the garden in perfect unity. And so that phrase, not good, if you've been reading Genesis 1 and 2 up to this point, all you've heard is God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and then God saw that it was very good, right, the seventh time uh, around. And so when we see and stumble upon it is not good, this should be like, I mean, a red flag. Like, wait a minute, everything's good. What, what do you mean it's not good? And he says, I'll make a helper fit for him. And for those of you who are bothered by the term helper, don't worry, it's most often used of God in Scripture. It's not hierarchical or a negative term by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and what we see here is that the isolation of Adam in the garden was the first thing that God ever said that wasn't good. And I, it's profound because he's, he's, in, he's sitting there partnering with God over like stewarding creation. And God still says this isn't enough. And I think scripture is making this profound statement that just as we need a relationship with God vertically, we also need a relationship horizontally. 
that, that other humans are actually necessary to life being flourishing and to be as what God intended. And when they're together, these first humans, they're naked and they felt no shame. And so God's presence amongst this community, this first community, allows it to be a place where relationships were marked by trust and care and transparency. And so God's presence is it's a place full of people. This is a, a, a truth that I've had to come to terms with <laughs> over the years, right? And there's certainly like a place in the Christian faith for solitude or getting alone with God. Jesus had to do it, so I, I think we're, we probably have to too. But when that becomes the primary way in which we think about a relationship with God or the Christian faith, I actually think what happens is we fall stagnant and we fail to become what God intended us to become because Christian discipleship happens in community. And I think there's this uh, a fun little parable that you might have heard before that captures this idea. It's called The Lonely Ember and its author's unknown, but I just I want to read it this morning. A member of a certain church who previously had been attending services regularly stopped going. And after a few weeks, the pastor decided to visit him. It was a chilly evening, and the pastor found the man home alone, sitting before a blazing fire. Guessing the reason for the pastor's visit, the man welcomed him and led him to a big chair near the fireplace and waited. The pastor made himself comfortable but said nothing. In grave silence, he contemplated the play of the flames around the burning logs, and after some minutes, the pastor took the fire tongs, carefully picked out a brightly burning ember and placed it to one side of the hearth all alone. Then he sat back in his chair, still silent. The host watched all of this in quiet fascination as the one ember's flame diminished. There was a momentary glow and then its fire was no more and soon it was cold and ashen and gray. Not a word had been spoken since the initial greeting. And just before the pastor was ready to leave, he picked up the cold, dead ember, placed it back in the middle of the fire. Immediately, it began to glow once more with the light and warmth of the burning coals around it. As the pastor reached the door to leave, his host said, Thank you so much for your visit, and especially for that fiery sermon. I'll see you on Sunday. <laughs> Church, we need each other. And this is, I, I, like, I think it feels like an unfortunate thing. Because of sin and the fall, which we're going to look at in a moment, our relationships have often become a cause of, of more hurt than they are of help. That's a reality of living in a fallen world. But the beauty of the presence of God is not only does it transform our vertical relationship with God, it actually transforms the relationships that we have one to another, person to person as well. And what we can strive for as we await the new creation is to be a place where people can find meaningful, honest, and relationships in, in this church family. And so there, there it is, right? God created the cosmos to be with us. His presence is a place of partnership, of plenty, and it's full of people. And what I'd love to tell you is that's where the biblical narrative entered. We'd have a much shorter series but alas, we turn the page to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve rebel against God. They listen to the voice of the serpent. Uh, they steal a bite of that fruit and try to seize autonomy for themselves. And I just, I want to look at the results because I think it applies. Uh, that should probably say Genesis 3, uh, 8 through 10, uh, to, to our theme here. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And so this is, this is the heartbreak of sin right here. That, that word sound could also be, uh, is often translated voice. Um, in our Bibles. And I, I kind of like it in the scene if it was translated uh, voice. They heard the voice of the Lord calling, right? It's this idea that they used to stroll with God in the garden and be in relationship with him. But now, because of what they've done, they hear his voice and they hide. And the word presence is another, it's just the word for face, right? It could be the face of the Lord. And there's, there's something intimate about reading it voice and face, I think. But because of what was done, they were afraid. They hid themselves from one another and also from God. And the ultimate tragedy happens. Again, God's going to levy a curse against the serpent. He's going to talk to the humans about the consequences that are coming. Those relationships uh, that were supposed to be a help and fruitful are going to be difficult and full of strife. The work that they were to do to uh, co-labor with God to extend the garden was going to be full of thorns and thistles and toil. But I think this last piece in Genesis 3 verses 23 and 24 is is the ultimate uh, price of sin. It says, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so here we see that Adam and Eve, are, they're banished. They're exiled from the garden and driven out from God, who is the source of all life. And that's it. The, the price of sin was God's presence. And what's why we're doing the rest of the season is that, that we're, we're going to see that, that partnership with God was lost or marred in the garden. That, that, that price of sin was that abundance that they experienced in Eden in delight, because now they're going to struggle in exile. The price of sin was one another. Now they hid and covered themselves, right? There was hiding, blame shifting, relational turmoil. And that's the great tragedy of the fall, is that God banishes human from the very place that he had ordered and filled just just to be with them. But what we're going to see over the next series of weeks is that God was already working a redemption plan, right? Genesis 3.15 talks about a snake crusher who would come, right? And, and, And he begins this relentless pursuit of humans. And he wasn't going to give up on this idea that he created the cosmos to be with us. That was his original design for creation, and he was not one to to throw it away early. And so though we reject this, though we're banished from his presence, his relentless pursuit to bring humanity to himself begins. And that will culminate in the person of Jesus when God knits himself together in creation. Again, we'll dig down in that one in week three. But suffice to say that Matthew, he had it right. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, I don't, I, I'll, ne- I'll never fully understand why you would have created this incredible cosmos just to be with us, your creation, humans. I, it's, it's mind-blowing. And what a 
What a privilege it is to have a God, an infinite God, who so loves us and wants to be imminent among us. Lord, so what we acknowledge during this Advent season is that you did come, that you became flesh for us. And as you've ascended into the heavens, you've given us your spirit. Lord, you're with us to this very moment. And we look forward to the day when you come back and return and make all things new. When you usher in a new heavens and a new earth, and we'll, we'll never be separated from you ever again. And so, Father, thank you. Lord, there are so many times in my life where in my heart I, I don't believe that you want to be with me. The problem is the Bible tells me that that's absolute nonsense, that feeling. That I have a God who longs. Lord, you created the heavens and the earth, and you're going to move the heavens and earth to be with us. And so help us to believe that. Help us to long for that. Lord, when the enemy wants to whisper lies to us that tells us it's not so, may we remember that name, Emmanuel, God with us. And it's in his name that we continue. Amen. Amen.